ABMP Associated Bodywork and Massage Professionals is proud to sponsor the interdisciplinary podcast from Heal Well. Massage therapists and body workers who join ABMP get meaningful resources that make a difference in your career, including free online CE courses, online scheduling included with the ABMP Pocket Suite app, and comprehensive liability insurance that provides protection and peace of mind. Can't get enough podcast inspiration and information? Listen for the ABMP podcast with regular guest hosts Ruth Werner and Allison Denny. Discover why members expect more and get more at abmp.com. Hello and welcome to Interdisciplinary Season 10. Can you believe it? Season 10. Holy cow. Like, I guess they don't take people off the air anymore. Or, well, maybe they do, but we're not really, we're not in that place. So here we are, Season 10, Interdisciplinary, the podcast where we uh, help people who care for people do that in a more effective way that uh, supports equity and transparency and all the things that help us understand why the world is the way it is. So, so here we are. Uh, this is our, our first official episode. I mean, we have, you know, our like all the Hewellians saying this is where we're headed this season, but this is our first guest this season. As you know, we're going to start with a pun. And uh, no, I don't know if this qualifies as a pun, but, you know, people are shocked when they find out I'm not a good electrician. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so we have with us Rebecca Barnett all the way from Down Under. Uh, it is like eight-ish a.m. where Rebecca is coming to us, and um, Rebecca, why do we want to talk to you? What what have you been doing with your life, and how does it relate to massage therapy? Look, I have no idea why you want to talk to me, but can I just start with my favorite joke? Yes, um, it is literally my favorite joke, and it does include a pun. So, a woman walks into a bar and asks the barman for a double entendre, so he gave her one. That might be too Australian for an American audience. So we might oh, have to. So we gave her one, right? Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love how culturally dependent jokes are. I think that's probably yes, one of yes. my most favorite things. I remember when my son, who is now 12, they um, they found a, a far side cartoon book in, in my room. And they grabbed it and they said, oh, you know, dad, read this to me. And I was like, well, it's not really like a read to you kind of book. And so they're like, oh, you know, show me what this is. And so <laughs> I realized that every single panel is like a 30 minute conversation about context <laughs> and history and human relationship and all these things. I was like, oh, Gary Larson is a genius. Yeah, definitely. So, um, anyway, so I, I sidestepped your, your Thank question. you. That was that was amazing. Yeah. So uh, why do you want to talk to me? I, I hope that it's because I've been involved in uh, the massage therapy industry in Australia for, oh, I did actually work this out, about 25 years. And for a lot of that, I've been involved in dialogues around standard setting. Um, the association that I've worked for for many years uh, has the only, I think, comprehensive massage therapy code of practice. And so I was intimately involved in writing and preparing that, especially uh, working out all of the issues around what regulation does apply to the practice of massage therapy in Australia. So I'm hoping it's because of those reasons. I mean, that's part of it. Had we known that you were this fun and funny, we would have invited you long ago. <laughs> but um, what uh, what association or what organization did you work with or do you work with? So I work with uh, an association called the Association of Massage Therapists. So it's a very, you know, it's very nondescript, really, um, title, really, when you think of that. Indeed. <laughs> but it's um, it's the oldest association in Australia. So we were established in 1966, originally just in the state where I live, which is New South Wales. Uh, we became incorporated nationally around about 2004. Okay. So we're part of a long history where originally all of massage therapy was um, represented on a state basis. There weren't really 
much in the way of national organisations. And uh, it's one of the reasons why we still have quite a few legacy associations and why it's taken quite a long time to consolidate the industry and uh, reduce the number of rep representative organisations. So, I mean, I feel like there are so many... Um... There's so many misunderstandings and assumptions of people in different countries and continents about things. And I feel like in some ways we're going to have a conversation that is similar to what we'll have with our Canadian folks, which is that like, so talk to us about sort of broadly, Australia is is a country, but there are territories. And there are yeah. like, when you say like state level, people go, wait a minute, it's just a country. Like it's just <laughs> Australia. And it's like, well, right. But we're a country in America and we've got 50 of these damn states. So how does each territory, like how does it break up in terms of how you try to regulate massage therapy practice? Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a little bit messy because health is, um, some some aspects of health are regulated federally and other aspects are, are regulated as state basis. And really, I suppose, is it okay to call it the grunt end of health is actually regulated at state level? Sure. So to give you a perfect example of how messy that can make things, we have this thing in Australia that's called the National Code of Conduct and um, <laughs> it has various <laughs> names and manifestations. It's It's basically... A piece of of, um, of regulation for what even even the way they refer to it has different names. Actually, some states call it for non-registered healthcare practitioners. Other states call it for unregistered health care practitioners, and other states call it for healthcare workers. So, basically, the intent of this national code was to find a way to. Um, negatively licensed, regulate practitioners who don't fit into the national reg um, registration scheme for healthcare uh, workers that covers nurses and doctors and pharmacists and all that kind of stuff. So even though it's called a national code, it has been made into legislation so far in four states as, and is in the process of being made into legislation in three others. And in every single state, it's called something different. In every single state, even though the essence of it is pretty similar, it's got slight variations. So we talk about the National Code as if it's this monolithic single thing when it's actually got so far four manifestations, soon to be six or seven manifestations. So it does get a bit messy because maybe a lot of Australian massage therapists aren't even necessarily aware of this legislation depending on where they sit in the you know how qualified they are and that kind of thing um so it makes it really complicated to kind of say well you know it is a national code but if you're living in Queensland this is what it looks like and this is the complaint body that that oversees it if you're living in New South Wales you know this is what it looks like if people in New South Wales aren't aware of it I would be very pissed off because it's been around since 2008 that was the beginning of the whole process it wasn't called a national code when it was first established because it was just a New South Wales code but um, yeah, it's just, it's fractured and messy, basically. Yeah. So this might not be a question you can answer, but I think one of the big questions that we find ourselves asking here is what do consumers know about these things? <laughs> and <laughs> excellent. I'm glad we're on the same page. Yeah. So obviously um, consumer literacy around this stuff has definitely improved. One of the one of the big leaps I think that happened in Australia that really helped was um, the establishment of national competency standards. So they've been in place now for 20 years. So wait, I just want to, so the continent of Australia has a national competency standard. And that's genuinely national. So basically it's part of the Australian qualifications framework. And we have, wow. yeah, so we have two main qualifications for qualified massage therapists so we've got uh, a certificate four level qualification which is called certificate four because it's four steps on the Australian qualifications framework okay and then we have a diploma qualification which is at level five okay and so they are the, the the principle there's a couple of other qualifications but they are the principal qualifications um for the massage therapy industry now 
because because it's not a registered profession you don't have to hold one of those qualifications to practice as a massage therapist there's no protection of title but having those national competency standards helps I think a lot of members of the public would understand that and be aware of it in terms in terms of these national codes of conduct and and consumer awareness of those I have to say even when we're dealing with serious indictable um, offences that come in as complaints sometimes the police aren't necessarily aware that those codes of conduct exist so if the police are aware then you can imagine that members of the public might not be right Um, but basically it's improved but it's still got a long way to go there's still a lot of work that could be done by associations to raise awareness of the fact that there there is this co-regulatory structure in place currently already in four states and soon to be in three more so if you were going to if you were going to pick two reasons why there's more work to be done or why those things haven't already happened. What would you, if you were to hazard a guess at what the challenges are, what the barriers are to, I mean, I feel like one of the things we talk about all the time is like, why wouldn't we do this? And like, Oh, here's why we wouldn't do this. So what's, where's the pushback? Where's the bureaucratic what's in the way? What's in the way of more consumer awareness you mean? or Uh, Of consumer awareness of sort of like, um, standards that like you can only practice if you have done these things okay so the the, there's two really obvious things that come to mind and and they're quite a clear and obvious division as well and the second one I'm going to say is not going to make me a popular person but the first one I will say is that uh, we have specific criteria in Australia that's legislated for for registration, so the the, the national register of registered professions, um, and it ha- and it comes with six key ki- criteria for for why a healthcare profession needs to be registered, and one of those criteria is safety. Wait, so I don't know if you can put a pin in where you're headed, but a whole lot of body language just happened that okay. I want to <laughs> that I want to like so. Your whole body briefly collapsed as you <laughs> as you, <laughs> you talked about where about this topic. So can we go down in there and like yeah, sure, is it just sure. like yeah, please. So I think we're up to about 14 or 15 registered healthcare professions in Australia. So the national law came into place. Don't quote me on this for healthcare workers. Um about 2011 but that could be wildly wrong so okay excellent but it's been around for more than a decade easily right okay um so they have been gradually adding professions to the core group that started with that is the obvious group so okay gps well the, the medical profession nurses um chiropractors chinese medicine practitioners were added uh paramedics were added about four years ago so they they started with a core group and it's got a little bit bigger but one of the six criterias to become registered as a healthcare practitioner is that there is a serious safety issue with the provision of this particular healthcare and that's always been the main stumbling block to having Show me you can hurt people and we'll regulate you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes. But but the weird thing about that is that the other registered professions who will often, particularly, for example, physio, who will often want to stand in the way of something like massage being registered, um, they don't view, and most of the uh, healthcare professions don't necessarily view registration just about um, public safety, they view it as kind of like a, a status symbol of of achievement at a certain level. So the public sure. safety thing quickly falls a- away when a profession will come forward and say, you know what, we think that we need something a bit more grunty than co-regulation because we think that there is a, a public risk. And certainly, you know, in terms of, of um, 
the therapeutic relationship and power imbalances and and vulnerability, there's a pretty sort of cogent argument to say massage therapy is highly risky. But traditionally, that has been the barrier. Well, you don't kill people and you generally don't maim people and you generally don't do too much to even, you know, hurt people. So therefore, it's it's not the right fit for that particular, you know, healthcare profession. So, yeah. so there's, there's that barrier, which is significant. But the other side of the equation is the practitioner barrier. And so there is not by any stretch of the imagination, any kind of coherent consensus that massage should be registered in in Australia. Same. But also, if you think about the last three years, one of the things that became brutally clear to me as the pandemic started to unfold in 2020 is that there is a significant majority of massage therapists who may not realise it because they think that the industry needs to be more regulated, but they definitely don't want it to be more regulated because as soon as the government started telling us what we could and couldn't do, people were very pissed off. (laughs) Oh, go ahead, please. Well, there's this othering thing where, you know, if if you're on any kind of, as you know, any kind of, social media group involving massage therapists there's always this element of othering which is yeah the industry needs to be more regulated it's a jungle out there that's full of cowboys but there's never necessarily accompanying that the introspection about what am I doing that might be problematic on a because I think it's a day-to-day proposition that you reflect on what you've done and you think well I really stuffed that one up um, so there's always this, the problem is always in someone else. It's always the other. It's not the individual therapist. And so when the government started shutting down massage, well, first of all, there was outrage because we were referred to as massage parlours. And so that just led to, you know, the most extraordinary kind of backlash. And- yeah, yeah. But systematically being told you can and you can't do this, was not well received by the majority of massage therapists in Australia, I don't think. And I suspect that was true internationally. Yeah, I think, I mean, I wonder, and and so you're our first guest this season, but we'll be talking to people from all over the world about how massages, I'm going to say wrangled, I'm not even going to say regulated, like, and that in the US, we talk a lot. At, well, I'm not going to say in the US, at Healwell, we talk a lot about how <laughs> massage therapists are are kind of pirates. They're we're rogue. Like people are attracted to massage therapy because of the lack yeah. of boundaries, or at least the perceived sense that like I'm here to engage in the like endless web of humanity. And so, how would you possibly regulate that? And at the same time, like this this question of harm comes up, and and we have a variety of regulatory agencies in our country, and and. One is particularly dedicated to making sure that the public is safe. And I I feel like as the conversation shifts about like what is safety, I feel like you you touched on this a little bit that so I don't have to be bleeding to have been harmed. Right. I don't have to have a blood clot. I don't have to have like a a torn muscle like trauma is trauma. And so. How, I mean, and you really did a great job of talking about you. I mean, you didn't say, but we have a naked person lying on a table. I am clothed and standing. There are a variety of things happening here that really lend themselves well to the possible commission of harm. (laughs) And so what do we, you know, and I mean, I think the same is true of social workers and nurses and like people who go into the intimate spaces of other humans and I feel, I wonder if the conversation is similar in Australia as it is here, where you have therapists who sort of envision themselves as some sort of mechanic. Like they're aware that we're, they're working with a human, but it's like stuff, it's parts that I can make work better. And then yes. there are therapists who are like, this is a really nuanced, complex organism that has experiences and yes. stuff that like I need to know more about. And yes we tend to be very sort of technique focused in terms of what kind of continuing education we value, what kind of things we, <laughs> I wish you guys could see Rebecca right now because it's, 
it's sad and also confirming that like, I think these conversations are happening in Australia. So please say what your body is saying. Well, one of the things that that the association that I work for has endeavoured to do, and in some ways the pandemic was a blessing in this regard because it allowed us to, to supercharge a route that we were already down, is to try and expand the focus of, of, of massage therapy education so people weren't on this single track of technique, 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 modality, modality, modality. And so when you can't have face-to-face classes that are practical in nature, then it gave us the opportunity to to start trying to to encourage therapists to undertake a broader range of, of activities that had nothing to do with learning techniques. And we still sustain that now. Um, because, I mean, I, I'm probably, again, not going to make myself any friends by saying this, but I think in your basic education, if you can't be set up with enough techniques that last you close to a lifetime with a bit of imagination to adapt them with your understanding of physiology and anatomy, if you if you can't be well-grounded at that point at the beginning of your education and then use your intelligence to work out how to adapt substantially without having to learn every single new modality that comes along then I think we have a problem whereas it takes I think it's a lot more complicated and it takes a lot more time to understand the nuance of that complex person in front of you on the table and a much broader exposure to ideas and philosophies and frameworks and you know all those kind of buzzwords I stopped myself from saying paradigms but then I just said it um, it happens yeah it happens it's, it's, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> so so that's 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 sort of where I sit on that whole kind of technique and and modality thing I think you know I, I've just I find I personally find it quite challenging I think it is really challenging. And I wonder, you know, we've been talking a lot here. So in February, we're hosting a a two day symposium about really about information and how it's a living thing and how we use it and how we interact with it. And um, the associations, Canada, Australia, the US are all like, absolutely. We can't wait to sponsor this. People need this. People are registering, but there are other topics that people are like, oh, that's a thing I want to learn. And it's like, this is like, this is like the protein in your diet. Like (laughs) you, you, if you are touching humans, you need, and you don't come to come to our class, but you should be thinking very deeply about how you interact with information. And I feel like this is our struggle with education standards and regulation in terms of like, marketability unfortunately comes into the picture and like what do therapists imagine they want which leads me to the question that I wonder I don't know if you can answer and I want to I want to put a big shout out to Rana Moore who told us to call you because um, we asked Rana we're like Rana who do you know who can tell us about all these things and I think she sent us in the right direction Um, (laughs) like so a question that we're asking a lot is massage therapy without a lot of hustle is not a sustainable career in America. Yes. Yeah. Would you say that that is true in Australia? And what what's is there any conversation around that? And how do you think that plays into all of these different moving pieces? Uh, yeah, so I, I think it's possibly slightly less grim in Australia than it is in the US. I, I get the impression, especially with some of the large massage chains, that they're so deeply exploitative in their business model that that uh, it really is just, you know, one step removed from human slavery. Uh, but it is still difficult. And any of the workforce surveys that we've ever done consistently have shown that massage therapists earn less than the, um, like significantly less than the average wage. And in, in terms of median wage, there's still a, a fairly long way, you know, south of where you'd like it to be. Um, here, the biggest issue we have, I'm not sure whether it's the same in the States, but here the biggest barrier and issue we have is this entire, the entire engine room of, of engagement in Australia is built on this contracting model. Um, and so the number of 
actual proper jobs involving either full-time employment or you know fixed stable full-time employment or part-time employment and all the benefits that go with that probably only represents well last time we did a survey on this it was only five percent of the jobs available were were full-time or part-time proper under a registered award so there is an award that applies to the practice of massage therapy in Australia um so wait what does that mean so it means that there are minimum wages and conditions associated with being engaged as a massage therapist. Okay. Yeah, that's not a thing we have. Okay. Please continue. <laughs> yeah. A, a, I mean, Australia definitely has one big advantage over, over the US, and that is that there is a, a long history. It has been absolutely eroded with, you know, neoliberal governments over the last 20 years or so. But but there's a long history of unionization and a fairly strong union union movement. Um, but but even though there is an award, probably only about between five to ten percent of massage therapists in Australia are engaged under that award. So to give you a practical implicate um, example of how that turns out, AMT will advertise positions on our website, but we have a statement saying we won't advertise any contracting positions because. I've got to see over the years so many contracts and they are sometimes hilarious, but they are such a horrific shit show of just yes. ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous things that are being imposed on therapists that are certainly not lawful and certainly not enforceable. So at any given time. Well, and, and by hilarious, we mean like ridiculously exploitative and yeah, like, yeah. wow, holy yeah. cow, this is so awful. Exactly. Yeah. And every time I think I've seen the worst contract I've ever seen, another one comes and I have to revise and say, no, this is the worst contract I've ever seen. Um, so, so at any given time, AMT only has a few jobs advertised on our website because that there are so few actually properly engaged um massage therapy jobs being advertised and it's what people because it's the model it's people get away with advertising things without just basic fundamental things I mean most of the advertising itself is unlawful because it's not giving pay rates or really crucial information about the role itself which is actually there's legislation that covers that stuff so um so the biggest issue I think that we we have been trying to tackle but need to do another push on in terms of massage therapists making a living wage is this issue of unstable, insecure employment via contracting. And a really significant percentage of that contracting is sham contracting. You know, people who are showing up to work and working the equivalent of a, of a permanent part-time or a full-time position, but yeah. getting, getting paid you know, contractor rates and only getting paid every time they touch a body, which I think also speaks and intersects a little bit with the education issue because it's like if our if our education is only about touching bodies, then, of course, people are going to think, well, that's all you do, so yeah. therefore that's all we'll pay you for. Forget about all the other stuff that's fundamental to building therapeutic relationships and, and taking care of your clients. Gosh, I sound like such an angry person. I don't mean to oh, do. Oh no, it's so <laughs> you just need to <laughs> hang out with us more. I mean, maybe we're all angry, but I think you know, like I'll just, I'll just, I can't find an attribution for this, but somebody said that angry is sad's bodyguard, and I do <laughs> think that's true. That like we're angry because there's so much potential here, but we can't move beyond. I want to say our humanness because I, I, I fear. <laughs> <laughs> that as we talk to people from around the world, the common denominator will be humans. And yeah. that like, yeah. the question is like this zero sum game that we don't know we're playing that like, if you win, I lose. Yes. That yeah. isn't accurate. And so like, how do we like in the U S like I was just talking with a person who is a, a Dean at a massage school. And she was saying like, our admissions people are admitting people who think that they can, like there's a person who is going to, who's going to support her five children on a massage therapist income. And like, as an admissions coordinator, you need to be able to say, so this is no, 
please, like, I, I don't want to crush your dream to be a massage therapist, but I want to be super clear that there's, there's, you will be lucky to support you and maybe one child with this job. And that yes. when people come into massage school, what they hear is like, what they know is I've paid between 90 and $150 for a massage. And if this is a full-time job, the math they do is that much money times 40, which there's no way you could do 40 massages in a year or in a week and keep doing that for years and years. Right. Yeah, so right. like, do we start pitching this as a part-time job? Like when people come to massage in Australia, when they come to massage school, are they thinking this is a full-time job? And is that a thing that they can reasonably, I'm not saying people get rich doing that, but like to make ends meet, at least in America is harder than we might think. And so, and like what we're willing to tolerate yes, <laughs> is also yes. broader yes, than yes. I want to imagine. So yeah. like, how does that play out in, in Australian culture and politics? Well, I think there's an awfully large percentage of massage therapists who train and then enter the industry and realize that they can't make a living wage and exit. Uh, slow incremental improvement on that, but it's very slow. Uh, the pandemic, I think, really brought home to people the fragility of, of trying to earn a living out of um, massage, although ironically for the better part of, um, well, over a year for some people, be because the government in Australia's first response very quickly after things were shut down, we ended up with a with a with probably an over... Um, overly generous in some respects um, scheme to support people's wages. Uh, so we had a whole lot of massage therapists in Australia who were earning more than they'd ever earned in their life. Um, they, <laughs> right. had a stable, they had a stable income of $750 a week tax-free, which is, you know, that's not too bad, especially if you were earning a part-time income from massage or eking out an existence. Um, so the way I think, sorry, I kind of diverted, but the way the way I think it works itself out is that there's either, either attrition because people realise that they can't make a living out of it or there's still that very strong, and I and I don't actually have a problem with this, but but people who don't rely on massage solely 100% for their income because they have an other income stream or they have some financial support from somewhere else in their family unit or, or whatever. Yeah. So it's still very much... Um, principally a part-time industry in Australia and I think that is just a reflection of the fact that it is so hard to to make a full-time living so you've got your outliers who are doing spectacularly well you know and they and that group is getting bigger um and I think also we're trying to address the race to the bottom so the you know the cheapest possible <laughs> that you can charge is, is the way to go because that drags everyone down yes um, so we're trying to encourage people to not like be bargain basement because then that feeds into that whole thing that you were talking about, about, you know, pitting one therapist against another and someone yes. trying to make a living out of just being cheaper. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think the main way it works itself out is that it's a very, it's a very part-time industry. Politically, it also means that we're just, we're a small industry, so we're not high priority for the government, which then I, I think is another element of the why aren't we registered because we're small, it's very expensive to do. Um, this co-regulatory model that we've got in place in some states is, is pretty inexpensive and it covers a lot of bases, not just massage therapists. It covers all those people who you can't naturally or easily position into a registration model. Yeah. So, so where do you fall, Rebecca Barnett on like, so we're, we're doing a deep dive internally into volunteerism and sort of like what you just hinted to like the race to the bottom. Right. Right. So <laughs> again, listen, people, if you want to see how our guests are responding to these questions, <laughs> you need to pay your dollar a month. And come into the Patreon and see the video of these episodes. Because when I said volunteerism, Rebecca, like, collapsed. Um, so uh, my question isn't even about volunteerism specifically, but just that, like, so, 
It could be. I mean, we could probably <laughs> go down the rabbit hole of volunteerism, right? And I'm, I'm going to put a pin in that because I feel like that's a uniquely American thing, but clearly everything about your body is telling me that's not a uniquely American thing. But man, so, oh, talk to me about volunteerism. Let's just stop there. Let's not even. Well, it's, it's probably timely because one of the last things I did before I went on long service leave was, was on, on behalf of the AMT board, I wrote a position statement on volunteering. And so in that position statement, we tried to strike a balance between we're a caring profession, we understand the desire and the um, the drive to be a helper and to offer services to uh, people who are maybe vulnerable or disadvantaged or whatever. So we've kind of listed a whole lot of things that we've said, do not under any circumstances volunteer in these contexts but try to strike a tiny bit of a balance by saying, you know, if you have done an assessment and an honest self-assessment and said, this is the best and most um, reasonable or uh, appropriate way to offer my services to somebody um, that is not in any way disadvantaging another therapist or um you know, is like we, we even said if there's another way that you can offer your skills that isn't massage, you need to make sure that you offer that first before you before you offer to volunteer massage. So we've sort of middle pathed it a little bit, but it's a very strong statement about do not under any circumstances do it in in these contexts. And a lot of the um, things that we list, especially um, happen in this sporting environment where it really is a race to sign on to a very high profile you know an area of desire desirability that attracts a lot of people into massage is working on on high profile sports people absolutely here too yeah so so there's a lot that goes on in that space um but we basically just said you know if you are in any way potentially impacting the income of another therapist by offering your services for free when there would have been payment, just don't do it. Uh, the other the other thing that we've had up on our website for years is actually a position statement on voluntourism, which is a big bugbear of mine. And there's been a couple <laughs> oh, of very man. there's been a couple of very exploitative companies and um one or two very high profile people with good reputations. And we've just basically written this very brief position statement outlining exactly what's wrong with orphanage tourism and orphanage. Um, Why do we have to do, I mean, come on guys, connect the dots. (laughs) But you know, it's amazing how many times it might come up in social media where people say, I'm going to go off and, you know, do this, this mission or whatever it is. And I'll just, place the position statement there and it's got a couple of references in it that you can follow and just say please read this and people will say I'm going to do it anyway okay so you're not actually really interested in helping someone you are doing this for yourself yeah this is about you yeah 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 so we we decided that it was a good idea to put something up about volunteering because I think there is that thing that you have to acknowledge that it's a caring profession and people go in to provide their skills with the genuine belief that they are doing something good in the world. And so it's just a matter of making people maybe do some sort of like a risk management, risk assessment, like some sort of little internal process where they think, is this the right service to offer? Is is this person... um, you know, able to pay for treatment. And if they are, then why am I doing it for free? Well, um, this is, I mean, so so this is where I, I am really interested in learning from all of our guests around the world about, so the conversation we're having here and less and less of us are having it because <laughs> George Floyd was murdered decades ago by the memory of many Americans. So what so when you think about inviting people to do the assessment you just described my cynicism is that many people don't have the resources to make that assessment it's like saying talk to me about your privilege people go, i have any privilege i work my butt off for everything i got like yeah, how what so is that is i mean 
Australia's a penal colony for crying out loud, right? <laughs> like, so talk to me about the cultural history of like, is there the story of meritocracy in Australia? How does that play out in this whole picture of what people are willing Here's to my do? collapsing posture again, just yeah. so I put you the, the alt text for the audience. <laughs> totally. Uh, so we, you've heard of the tall poppy syndrome? You totally. I, yes, yes. Tall poppy syndrome. Everyone who pipes their head above, above the crowd. Yeah, so that's that's really fundamental to Australian culture. We don't like anyone to be up themselves and, and stick out too much. But, yeah, the, the meritocracy and the invisible privilege is a big, is a big issue here. Um, and it has, I think, a very specific expression in the massage therapy industry. It's, it's where the massage industry intersects with the more sinister part of the wellness industry. And I know that sounds like a weird way of putting it, but that sort of part of the, the wellness industry that really showed its colours during the pandemic where they they showed the extent of the eugenicism and the, you know, you'll be okay as long as you're not fat and unfit. Yes, and, or black. Or black. Or, right, Indigenous so or kind of, Aboriginal. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that that unacknowledged privilege, that that lack of awareness around uh, around where you sit in the sort of social hierarchy or what social capital you have, it's it's a very big issue across society. But it also has a particular manifestation in in the massage industry itself, and. Uh, I was quite I was quite shocked by the extent of it and I started reading um really interesting because I was going down this kind of rabbit hole a really interesting uh British philosopher who's been doing a a series on what he calls spiritual eugenics where he is systematically unpacking where the wellness wellness industry has intersected with these sort of really quite sinister you know, right-wing ideologies and conspiracy theories and um, and with, you know, out outright uh, eugenics, basically. Um, I think I just went off on a tangent. I don't know. No, so here's it. No, you, you only think that because you've never hung out with us. Like this <laughs> is, so the, I mean, I feel like we're not interested in allopathic medicine, right? We're interested in in like osteopathic. How did we get here? And this is how we got here, right? Is that like people were like, oh, eugenics, how bad is it? And it's like, oh, it's pervasive. Like, and it was bad when it started, but now it's everywhere. And it's so normalized that we don't notice it. And the wellness industry, like we, I don't know if you're familiar with the podcast maintenance phase, but it's one that we reference yes. regularly on the show. And they talk so much about how like this whole idea of like, what even is wellness? And like, I'm so curious. And I think we're curious here at Heal Well about like, how does wellness, how do wellness and massage intersect? And like, how does, ugh, speaking of unpopular, how does self-hatred <laughs> or self-judgment mm, figure into our decisions to become massage therapists? And what's the like relationship of yeah, I think that's a huge, huge question, and uh, and I, I think you do you do see that working itself out, and I and I don't think any of that would be a problem if if people were reflecting on that every day and embodying that in the way they deliver care. But it's the capacity to, I think, the capacity to self-reflect. And, like, we we see this unfold daily in AMT because a couple of years ago, actually as the pandemic was starting, we, we entered into our first year of a reflection-based continuing ed education model. And so you see people log their reflections in a, in a portal and you, you see quite sort of starkly that there are some people for whom self-reflection is just anathema, they, they probably can't do it. Uh, it's just not in their DNA or their makeup or they've never been sort of talked through through how to do it. So I, I kind of don't feel like, you know, if people are attracted to, to massage because of some kind of 
internal wound or trauma or damage or the need to make things better in the same sense that a lot of psychologists are attracted to psychology for much the same reasons. Absolutely. That it's not a problem, but the difference between psychologists and massage therapists is that psychologists are required to be in supervision. So they're required to do the hard work to acknowledge all that stuff. Whereas massage therapists sometimes even have a chip of, on the shoulder about that. Absolutely. And, uh, will, you know, loudly declare that they're an empath or they, they feel other people's pain or, you know, all of that kind of stuff, which may well be true. Oh, things I wish were deeply American. You're killing it for me, Rebecca. You're really killing Sorry. it. <laughs> they're, they're not. Now, wait, so tell me about, so we're in an ongoing conversation and we're going to have some folks on from our national certification board later in the season about like, so talk to me about this. I can't remember the phrase you used, but like basically continuing ed based on self-reflection. How did you get there? What does that mean? How is it being received? Because I, I feel like these are very similar struggles that we have here is that people feel attacked when you say like, I think part of what brought you here was your wounds. And that's cool. Like you're not wrong, bad, broken, whatever. And you can stop there. This is what invited you here. And now we're inviting you to a much cooler party. That's going to make you of much greater service to your fellow humans. But people are like, oh, I don't want to go to that party. It looks hard. <laughs> yeah, it does look hard. Um, so, so what led us to the reflection-based model? Well, first of all, we spent years, oh God, it's hard to kind of gauge how many AMT members are going to listen to this and go, oh my God. So we spent years struggling with the fact that the way we were doing continuing professional development in terms of having this point system was really crap. We knew it was crap. One of the things we got rid of about, I don't know, six or seven years ago, we used to accredit certain types of continuing professional development. Yep. And so it reached a point where we could not sustain doing that anymore for a number of reasons. But the the one that was the most troubling was that there are only certain kind, kinds of continuing education providers who will stump up a fee to get accredited. And our issue was we were trying to make the fee as minimal as possible to encourage a broad range of people to accredit but that it was running at a loss for us because the labor that went into doing that accreditation properly was in orders of magnitude probably you know 20 times more expensive than the fee we charged and we went okay this is ridiculous we're doing this at a loss yeah then we promote these courses and then we funnel everyone into this incredibly narrow channel of things that they can do which were often purely technique-based as well because those are the people who are best at marketing and probably doing the best with what they deliver. So we abandoned the accreditation system and kind of opened things up and said, you know, there's certain things that we will never recognise and here's a list, but you go nuts and check with us if you're doing something and make sure that we'll, we'll recognise it. And so we sort of limped along in this middle ground where we weren't funneling people into a narrow stuff and we were trying to broaden people's horizons by by pointing them in other directions. But still the system that we were working under was really shit. So we sort of struggled with it for years and years and eventually we just went, we have to do something about this. We were trying to um, be a little bit less policey about it, um, knowing that the risk was that if you don't really tightly police it, people are going to do kind of bizarro shit or they're going to um, bizarro shit that's the technical term (laughs) yeah it is yeah or they're going to cheat the system if they're not being constantly checked and all that kind of stuff and then I just had to keep saying to the board you do realize people do that anyway in the current system there's always going to be a percentage of people who are going to do that stuff so we just need to move on and and look after the people who are you know who are keen to expand their knowledge and and um and professionally develop. So basically, we knew that we wanted to expand the options for people. We knew we wanted to make it more possible for people to follow their own kind of personalized, relevant professional development journey. And we felt like the best way that we could do that was to have this reflection-based model where there's five questions that that people get asked when they're logging their professional development. And so the onus, rather than on 
AMT being the policeman saying, yes, this is fine. No, that's not fine because there's so many shades of grey in terms of scope of practice even. The onus is now on the therapist to say, I know this is not classically in the centre of the massage therapy practice, but this is why this particular activity was relevant to my practice and where I'm going or how I'm working or what I'm choosing to specialise in. And this is why, this is where the value of this, this activity is for me in my professional journey. So the responsibility is on the therapist to say, oh, I just want to think of a good example of something they might do where it seems like it's really right off the charts. But well, you know, I feel like you could praise it. You could go to Healwell's online course list and you could pick any of our courses. <laughs> Yes, okay, and, and, you know, and, and people would be like, mm, I don't know, but it's like, what are you doing with massage? What do you need to know to be able to do that? Well, to be able to engage with this really complex nuanced organism that is a human. And I, I feel like this is the thing that, and maybe, I mean, I don't know, we're, we're like unpopular is kind of our brand. So like <laughs> we, <laughs> We came here from this idea of if you don't watch people, they'll cheat. If you don't, whatever, people people are bad. And so unless we tell them they're going to be punished, they're going to cheat. People yeah. are going to cheat. Some people are for sure going to cheat. You're never going to stop that, like no matter how rigorous you become. But what are the possible benefits of saying to people like, I, I don't, I work with people who will be dead within weeks. That is my population, right? I don't need a deeply like structurally reintegrating type of CE. I need to know how to like embrace my own mortality. I need to know how to shut up when I want to say a thing. I need to know things that have nothing to do with my hands. They yeah. will make me a better massage therapist, but I need you, my regulatory agency, to trust me that I know what I need based on what I'm doing with this discipline. Yeah. Yes. And that's, that's a level of trust that I don't, I don't know if we can achieve in the States. And it sounds like you're trying it. And I know some folks I've spoken to in Canada are trying that in different provinces. And I, I'm really curious about like, what's the response to this approach? Hello, podcast listeners. This is Rebecca Sturgeon, the podcast producer, just jumping in to tell you we are going to leave this question hanging for you. This conversation with Rebecca Barnett from Australia was so good that we uh, made it into two episodes for you. And we hope you will join us next week to hear Rebecca's answer to the question of how that went in Australia. Meanwhile, please email us at podcast at healwell.org or join us in the Healwell community, community.healwell.org to let us know what you think and let us know what you think is going to be coming next week in part two of our conversation with Rebecca Barnett. Thanks for listening. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.